Hey guys, welcome back to the podcast. So, two things. One, you might hear in the background Hala snoring, because she has definitely decided that she is my dog. And two, you might hear the rain coming down from the roof. I've never noticed it do this before, but for some reason I can just hear it in the background. So, sorry if you can hear that on your guys' end. So today, we're going to talk about neonatal resuscitation. So what does that mean? Basically, we're going to be talking about what I call making puppies. So after C-section, we you know help those puppies out or kittens out by trying to help resuscitate them or basically bringing them back to life, essentially. So we're going to talk about like why that's important, kind of what we do, and how like things have changed a lot. So just to give you a, some idea of like how this much this has changed, when I was a technician just starting out, we would get the puppies from the surgeon and we would rip off the sacks, tie off their umbilicals or cords immediately, then start rubbing them really hard and we would swing them so that you were getting the fluid out of their chest. Now, none of that sounds like what actually happens during like live birth, but somehow, you know, what, 25, 30 years ago, we thought that that was the appropriate way we should do things and that's what we should do. And so at that point, that's exactly what we did. And for me, like that's something I did for a long time. You know, I didn't realize that there were other ways of doing it um, until way later. I mean, even until I had gotten into vet school and had seen my wife give birth and I was like, wow, this is like nothing like what we do in puppies and kittens. Um, you know, it's interesting to see like how far we've come just by watching human medicine and kind of the things that they do. So, you know, kind of our goal with our neonatal resuscitation is that we want to make sure that we get as many live puppies as possible and that we give them a good start from the very beginning. And just to be clear, I'm not here to debate about whether we should have breeders or not breeders, whether we should have be helping people with puppies or not helping people with puppies. Um, I'm just here to give information as to how to help these puppies that we can help or these kittens that we can help. Because you know what? I euthanize a lot of things, a lot of things every single day. And it's really nice sometimes to not have to euthanize things, to actually like see tiny puppies or tiny kittens. So again, I'm not here for the debates. I'm just here for the education. All right. So let's talk about like why is neonatal resuscitation so important? So the interesting thing is like how everything has eventually changed. We've actually learned that about 50% of all neonatal deaths, so all puppy and kitten deaths as soon as they're born, occur within the first three days of after being born because of things like hypoxia, so meaning lack of oxygen, hypothermia, which is low temperature, and malnutrition. Now, I can't really help them with the malnutrition besides um, educating the people who have the parents or the mom, what to do as far as that. And usually that just means putting her on a high quality puppy food, not an all stages food, like a high quality puppy food. But we can try to help with those first two, hypoxia and hypothermia, at least in the beginning. So hypoxia, so lack of oxygen, is actually the number one problem. We're going to talk a lot about that today. But hypoxia causes bradycardia, which is a low heart rate, weak respiratory drive, meaning that they just don't want to take a breath, and flaccid muscle tone, meaning that they're like, you know how you have the puppies and they're just kind of like floppy? That's what they're doing is they don't have enough oxygen. Hypothermia, so our low body temperature, occurs because 
essentially like puppies and kittens are too young to be able to shiver. Like they don't have that reflex. And they also don't have something called a vasoconstrictive reflex, meaning all the veins in their limbs and stuff cannot constrict or become smaller. So that we have like more blood flow going to the innards of our body. So like all of our vital organs and less going out to the other parts of our body, like our toes that don't really need it. They just don't have that reflex until later on. But hypothermia that can can cause bradycardia or low heart rate. It can cause tissue hypoxia, meaning that we don't have enough oxygen getting to our tissues. So like not just our vital organs, but just like all tissues. We get metabolic acidosis, meaning that our blood becomes really acidic. So when we think about like basic and acidic, it becomes really acidic. It can cause ileus, which means our intestines won't move. And then a decreased immunity. So even though we're giving them mom's immunity by getting them colostrum, they're not going to be able to absorb it correctly. And then they'll have a really slowed metabolism. So if they start nursing off of mom, they're not going to be able to like move that stuff through their intestines and start like metabolizing things or starting to like break things down essentially. So that's the kind of like the big things is like why this is important, but let's now talk about the kind of the preparation for it. So there's lots of things that we need. We do have our little containers or little baskets, like all ready to go with a lot of these things. But first of all, we need some warming supplies. So we need usually like dry towels, a bear hugger. Eventually, we're supposed to be getting a heated incubator. And so that's a really good one to put the puppies in as well. We're going to need oxygen. So have an oxygen like uh, machine over by where the puppy station is so that you have everything ready to go. We do use flow by oxygen, meaning that we put oxygen just in front of the puppies so that they can like just get oxygen as it flies by them, but also using small masks. And one way to use a small mask for this is you can take it like if we don't have a mask that's available, we have like a little tiny mask or something, but we don't have that little black ring around it or that black ring is too big for the one of the little puppies. You can put a glove over that and then you just cut out a hole in the glove and that'll make a nice fit around the puppy's face. So you can use those. You can also use material for um, if we're gonna intubate the puppies. So usually like, you'll see that there's these size two ET tubes. Um, I can't remember if we have size one or not, but I know we have size two. They have no cuff on the end of them, so nothing to blow up, but they'll be really tiny. You can use those to be able to intubate them. Or you can grab 16 or 14 gauge IV catheters and you just take out that little like needle part of it. And then the plastic part can actually be used as uh, a way to intubate the pet. We're going to need something for suctioning. So usually it'll come with bulb syringes, like multiple bulb syringes in there so that we can like suction out their nose. Something for venous access. So meaning something I can put as an IV catheter. So usually you want to get the 25 gauge IV catheters. You can also get spinal needles for an intraosseous catheter. So that literally means we're going into the bone. So you put like this big catheter into the bone. It can't absorb all medications, but it can absorb quite a few, which is nice. Umbilical care. So we need like small hemostats so we can clamp off the umbilicus. Some Suture. So now there's a lot of debate about this. There is non-absorbable suture is what um, clinicians brief had suggested. Dr. Morin in her thing had put in there absorbable suture. 
Honestly, I don't know that it matters that much which suture you use. I mean, that umbilical cord is going to fall off within the week. So does it really matter which one? Probably not. Some sharp, clean scissors and diluted iodine or betadine, whichever one we have. You also want some sort of monitoring equipment. So if you have a rectal thermometer, that would be great. Or also a pediatric stethoscope. So like if you have the stethoscope that has like the one that twists, that little one can be used as a pediatric stethoscope. And then also we want something to help keep our puppies healthy. The best thing you can do for that is to wear gloves. So just immediately put on some gloves. It's going to keep your hands from getting green if they have meconium all over them, which is that green nasty stuff that comes out. And also you're going to stop your bacteria from your hands getting onto these newborn puppies that have never seen bacteria before. All right, now let's talk about like we have everything prepped, everything's ready to go. Now we're going to talk about how do we take the puppies and kittens from the surgeon. So ideally you want to place at one of those warm, dry towels on, in your hands, like kind of like cup it in both hands, and then you're going to hold it over to the surgeon and have the surgeon drop the puppy into that little towel. Now you don't want to touch anything. Like you don't want to touch any of the surgical sites or anything like really like the surgeon is just going to drop it into your little towel and not touch your towel. Like a lot of times we'll do it by um, part of the sack or something by putting it in there. So that way we aren't touching the towel. And then that way you're able to go from the surgery room out to where all the technicians are so that they can start working on those puppies. And then that person is kind of like the runner and each time goes and grabs another puppy and brings it back out for the next group to work on the next puppy. So what happens now when we've got the puppy, you know, the runner ran the puppy into the treatment room. And now what do we do with this puppy, right? So whoever is working with them, a technician, assistant, receptionist, manager, Bob, whomever is jumping in to help with this. You know, ideally you want one person per puppy, but that's like impossible at nights. We literally don't have anybody to be able to do that, but we have at least we can follow a lot of these same concepts. If you have puppies during the day, you can grab people and just walk them through how to do things really quickly. It will help a lot for you to be able to help resuscitate and then take the next one. That's going to be maybe a problem one. So first big thing is remove that embryonic sac from the puppy. So it's in this like jelly thing sac. You want to remove that from the puppy. Don't remove the whole thing. Like don't clamp it off and take it off. Just remove it from the puppy. It could, it's just going to be hanging off the puppy at this point. Next, you want to make sure that the um, airway is really cleared. So if this is a puppy that's already vocalizing, like it's already making noises, it's clearing its airway on its own. We don't really have to worry about that. Notice when, if you've ever seen anybody give birth to a human, um, or if you've given birth to a human, go moms. If you if you notice that the like the human doctors don't suction out the baby's mouth or anything, you know they just wipe off the baby and that's about it. Even when we had a C-section with our our um, second Abigail, she did not like nobody wiped her mouth off and started suctioning her mouth or anything. Like literally she just started crying and then like was able to expel all that stuff on her own. So if they're able to cry, they're able to get a lot of that stuff out. And if that's the case, put them into the incubator or the bear hugger nest area that we make up immediately. The next big thing is that puppy just needs to be dry. 
So you can dry them off in there just with a towel, just to try to help get all that stuff off and then put them into the place where it has, you know, incubator, some warming area immediately. We need them to stay warm. And we're going to talk about a lot of that as well in just a minute here. But if the puppy is not vocalizing or the kitten is not vocalizing, now what are we going to do? So if they're not vocalizing, now we need to start clearing the airways. So gently suctioning out like the nose and the mouth with a bulb syringe so we can try to get as much of that stuff out as possible. And then drying the puppy off, so grabbing that towel, start drying them off really well. Like some of the regions to dry them off is just going to be just on their chest, their umbilicus, so going around where their umbilical cord is, like in a circular motion can help stimulate them, or even drying off the rectal or genital areas. But I say pick one, you know, you can either pick the rectal area or pick the genital area. Don't don't do both of them because then you're just going to cross-contaminate and then we're going to get an infection that way. And then next, provide some flow by oxygen. So turn the oxygen on, try to make sure all the gas is out of it so that way we're not like putting the puppy under more anesthesia. Because remember, if mom has been under anesthesia, the puppies have been under anesthesia, and now we have to bring everybody back from anesthesia. So if we're just giving more anesthesia, the puppy is never going to wake up. So make sure all of the gas is out of the system, and then you're going to start giving the oxygen. If mom received opioids, one thing you can do if none of this is working so far, you know you've been rubbing, you've been sectioning, you're giving oxygen. If none of that's working, you can give like a drop of naloxone or Narcan underneath the tongue um, only if mom had actually received opioids. So you want to ask to make sure did mom receive some sort of pain medication beforehand because most of those are going to be an opioid. And if she has, if she's received hydromorphone or fentanyl, those are usually usually the two big ones we use. Either one of those, then you can absolutely give a drop of uh, Narcan on underneath the tongue about once every 30 minutes if needed. If you just notice they're just like really slow, not waking up, you've been doing the rubbing, the suctioning and the oxygen, not waking up. Another thing to do is if the pet is still not breathing, after like 30 seconds of, of trying or has just like a really slow heart rate, you can give what's called positive pressure ventilation. So remember that mask I was telling you about you can make out of a glove? This is where this comes in. So what happens with positive pressure ventilation? It's where we are actually pushing pressure into the pet to make them breathe. It's like when we're doing CPR, you're pushing pressure into the lungs to make them breathe. That is positive pressure ventilation. What's even more so in this case is when these puppies were in utero, they just had fluid everywhere, fluid all over them, fluid in their lungs, fluid in their mouth. And now that makes their lungs kind of sticky and it kind of makes them flatten. So they don't really want to come apart and try to open back up, but we need that to happen. So we put more pressure into their lungs to try to make their lungs open up and start to breathe. So by doing that, again, we need 100% oxygen. We put that little mask over their mouth and make sure it's a tight fit. And then you're going to give a breath. So if anybody seen me do the CPR thing, you push on the little black button and then you give a breath with the bag. You're going to want to make sure to do it for about 20 to 30 centimeters of oxygen. There's like a little meter on it that'll show you how 
much pressure you're putting on it that's right next to where your little black button is, then a white little circle thing. And you're going to do that for three seconds. That's going to help increase the lungs, make them bigger, make them to the point where they're not flat anymore, so that way we can get more oxygen to them. If you can't get oxygen in that way or it's just not working, the next best thing is to intubate them. So you can use that one or two size ET tube to intubate, or you can use that 14 or 16 gauge catheter to be able to intubate. That way you can get, put that in, you hook up your oxygen to it and be able to get oxygen directly into the lungs that way. If you're going to do that, then you're going to make sure that you do one breath every two seconds, essentially. So it's it's technically 30 breaths a minute. So that's about what an average animal would breathe, right? But it technically means it's like one breath every two seconds, essentially. Another thing you can do to try to help them breathe is something called the resin hung. I'm going to butcher this, sorry. And the Jen Chung acupuncture points. So what you do is you take a 25 gauge needle and you put it into the nasal philtrum. So like if you're looking at the nose, you're going to see like the, little, the nice little black area. There's a line that goes down the front of the nose. So you're going to go down that line and essentially where the nose meets the mouth, that is going to be the point that you're going to do it at. So you put it in there, put the needle in there until it goes all the way down to the bone. And then you twist in a clockwise motion to be able to stimulate them to breathe. This is actually an acupuncture point, which is why we do this, because it's been shown to use, been useful in other things as well. Now notice in all of this, I did not say to use Dopram. The reason why is because it's now become controversial. You know, when I started, definitely like every single puppy, we'd, we would swing them, rub them, put Dopram under their tongue. But now they've like done more studies on this and actually found that Dopram does not work for a couple of reasons. One is that it helps to stimulate the central respiratory system. So in our brain, we have like a little spot that tells you when to breathe. But if that spot doesn't have any oxygen to it or it's hypoxic, then the drug doesn't work. So if we aren't getting oxygen to them, then giving Dopram is not going to work. It's just giving them an extra drug. The other problem with it is that it increases the body's demand for more oxygen on those respiratory muscles. So usually the big muscle for respiration is going to be our diaphragm. You have other rib muscles and stuff as well, but the diaphragm is a pretty big one. So if the diaphragm needs a bunch of oxygen to work and we're making the diaphragm work harder, it there's no way it can work because we don't have enough oxygen in the first place and we're just using up whatever little bit of oxygen we do have. So we actually don't want to use Dopram with these puppies. Now, the next big thing is we need to kind of focus on their heart rate. So with the heart rate, you know, we can have like bradycardia, so slow heart rate, or asystole, meaning there's no heart rate. Those almost always occur because of myocardial hypoxia, meaning that the heart does not have enough oxygen to it. And therefore, with our respiratory resuscitation, we need that first. We need to get them oxygen in order for any other part to work. Oxygen is going to be the key thing here. Get them oxygen and then other things will start to work. So just by getting them that extra oxygen, we can fix things like bradycardia by supplying more oxygen to the heart. 
let's say you guys have been like on top of it. You've been suctioning, you've been rubbing, you've been warming, you tried oxygen and still nothing is working. So here's some other things we can try then. So if the respiratory resuscitation, so trying to get them to breathe, isn't working, one, still continue ventilations. So still give them oxygen. However you're giving them oxygen, partial pressure of oxygen or intubating them, at this point, flow by isn't going to be enough. But we got to do one of those other things to try to get them as much oxygen as possible. You can do things like thoracic compressions, so chest compressions, just like we would do for a normal CPR patient doing chest compressions to try to help increase the rate of that heart. Another thing is to administer epinephrine. Epinephrine usually is going to go IV though. So this is kind of like one of those that IO is not great. So an intraosseous catheter is not as good as an IV catheter. But an IV catheter, you know, is if we don't have an IV catheter, intraosseous is the best we can do. And we just have to put it in there. And then one thing I'm not going to tell you that we're not going to do, we're not going to do atropine. So atropine actually has minimal to no effects on the heart of a neonatal puppy or kitten that is younger than two weeks old because it doesn't have that pathway, like it doesn't have those nerve connections to be able to send that signal to make the to tell the atropine to make the heart beat faster. Also, the other complication is going to be that if the heart is hypoxic or doesn't have enough oxygen, then atropine is not going to make it beat any faster. If we don't have any oxygen in our heart, it's not really going to be able to get oxygen around the heart. So we're not going to be able to beat faster, which means we're not going to get blood out to the rest of the body faster. And if we did, we're just moving more blood that doesn't have any oxygen in it. But oxygen is the main component. That's what we need, more oxygen. All right. One thing we can do, though, is you can also give an, a little bit of dextrose. So basically, it's it's just um, sugar or dextrose, and it helps bring up the puppy or kitten's blood sugar. Even if you can't get a blood sugar off of like a vein sample or something, you it is okay to go ahead and give a dose of dextrose, and it's not going to be de- detrimental. You can put it under the tongue, you can put it into the vein, or you can put it into that intraosseous vein we were talking about. Our next thing is a catheter. So we've talked about like all these things you can put into a catheter, but where we're going to put a catheter in this, this puppy or kitten? You know, their legs are teeny tiny and it's almost impossible. So actually the jug is the best place. The jugular vein is going to be the best place to put in a IV catheter. They have really long necks. Usually we can get into them pretty easily. And with the jugular catheter, um, you know, you want to actually go from like the, like the direction it should go would be like from the head down to the heart. So the end of your catheter should be facing towards the heart. That's just how blood flows. We just kind of want to make sure it's going the way that blood is flowing and not kind of like going against it. All right. Let's say you've done all these things. You have done warming. You've done, you know, breathing. You've done. Um, chest compressions, you've tried dextrose, like you've tried everything at this point, and this puppy or kitten is not coming back. How long do you do your, your resuscitation for? So the general rule is about 20 to 30 minutes. We should be trying to help resuscitate them. After that, it's probably going to be a lost cause. 
But even then, after that that like 30-minute mark, you can also just try putting them in a warm incubator, not doing anything else with them. Just put them in the warmth and see if they do come back. You know, sometimes they will. Not always, not most of the time, but sometimes they will. What defects are you also looking for as well after you've like been doing all of these things? Um, one is just checking for any sort of like acquired or congenital defects, meaning either they were born with it or something that happened right after they were born. One thing is going to be looking in their oral cavity or looking in their mouth. You're going to look for a cleft palate. And it's literally going to look like, like a crack in the top of their mouth. You can still resuscitate those puppies. You can get them, you know, back to being normal. You can, if the owner's in the building, you can always ask them, like, do they want this cleft palate puppy or should we like abandon uh, doing resuscitation on it? Because if they're not going to be able to take care of it or they think that they're not going to be able to, then you know, it's, it's not going to be worth it for that puppy. Looking at their umbilicus, you're going to look for signs of infection. You can still resuscitate them if they do have signs of infection. But remember, I still have not even talked about what to do with that umbilicus yet, so, so just stay tuned there. Looking at their urogenital structures, so looking to see if their, their penis or their vulva is fine. And if they're producing any urine, does it look clear or is it like a weird color, essentially? Looking at their their limbs, do they have any deformities of their limbs? You still can resuscitate these. But um, again, like if the owner's in the building, then you can always ask them like, hey, do you want us to resuscitate this one? That's leg is all messed up. Sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. Looking at their skin. Now, this is one that you probably don't want to resuscitate. It's like if you are rubbing the skin and the skin is like falling off as you're rubbing them, that's not that's not viable. That's not going to be something that's going to survive. So we are not going to resuscitate them. Also, just listening to their heart and lungs, making sure everything sounds okay. There's no obvious murmurs or anything. It's also great. You can resuscitate those that do have a murmur. Because, you know, like mom is not going to discriminate if one of the kittens has a murmur. And that's how we have little red. So. Notice though, again, like I still didn't really even mention the umbilical cord. We mentioned it just like a little bit right now and that's about it. Here's why. So let's just like talk about the crazy umbilical cord first and then we'll talk about like the reasons why. I've not mentioned it till now. So the umbilical cord, what does it do? So it takes venous blood from mom, which means the blood from mom that has no oxygen and it delivers it to the neonate through the umbilical artery. Okay, so venous blood from mom, meaning no oxygen, goes to the umbilical artery of the neonate. And then you have the arterial blood from mom, meaning blood that has oxygen. It's going to get delivered to the neonate through the umbilical vein. So the puppy's vein, umbilical vein. I know that's super confusing. Right. So I'm just going to be putting a lot of this in terms of like what has oxygen, what doesn't have oxygen. Because I think that's a little bit easier to understand. So after the neonate is born and gets its first breath, there's like this increase in oxygen and its saturation of oxygen in its lungs, which actually causes the umbilical vein, the one that has oxygen, to contract and close. Then multiple other organs, things like the ductus venosus, 
ovaliforamen and the ductus arteriosus. You can look into that or I can explain it to you later if you want me to, but just multiple organs, just know that. Multiple organs close, which leads to the blood supply like stop circulating from the lungs to the placenta. Because it was going placenta to lungs, you know, mom, placenta, lungs, mom. And then now that it's cut off from mom, now it can only go from puppy to placenta so many times. So so by cutting all of that off, it's making it to where all of the blood supply is going back to the lungs like it should. So I'm sure at this point you're just like, well, Great. I don't understand any of that. What does this have to do with us and the umbilical cords of the puppy? Why aren't we just claiming these things? All right, so real quick, we're just going to talk about human medicine and why this is important. So studies have shown, actually, in human medicine, that by not clamping the cord, it helps to stabilize the neonate circulation. So what that means is that if you don't clamp the cord and you let the blood circulate from the placenta to the puppy it will do a couple of things. It increases the perfusion of the rest of the body. So it makes it to where the rest of the body gets more blood. It also reduces hypoxia. Remember that, like lack of oxygen. It reduces that. So if we clamp the cord, the blood from the neonate umbilical cord, or the one that has oxygen, is going to abruptly stop. So that reduces the amount of blood flow that has oxygen in it, that's going to the heart, like going from the body to the heart. That's called preload of the heart. There's like lots of fancy terms for the heart stuff, but that just means whatever blood can go to the heart, it normally should be a pretty normal amount, but it's going to lose some of that blood because we pulled off the placenta too soon. So we just talked about it reduces the blood flow with the oxygen, but it also reduces the blood flow without the oxygen. So all that blood flow without the oxygen should be going out towards the placenta, but instead we've clamped it off and everything just kind of stays in there, which leads to something called afterload. So that means that we have all of our blood vessels are like getting really big. They're pooling with all of this blood and it makes it so that it's harder for that heart to work. So now we've clamped that off. We now have not enough blood flow going back to the heart. Heart has not enough blood flow in it, and then all the blood that's already been pumped out, it has too much of it, and now it's like backing up when it does that. So ideally, we don't want to clamp the blood vessels at that point. So all of this leads to the heart not pumping efficiently, meaning we have a reduction in cardiac output. The heart does not pump efficiently enough to get blood out to the rest of the body like it should be able to. So I'm sure you're rolling your eyes at me, and you're like, yeah, yeah, I've done this like hundred times, they're all just fine, right? But let's look at just some of the evidence from our human medicine. Um, waiting to clamp that umbilical cord, they've actually found has led to a reduction in the number of babies needing blood transfusions due to anemia, reduction in intraventricular brain hemorrhage, meaning, they, meaning there's bleeding in the brain, or also reduced sepsis, which were three really big problems in babies. Now, if you went to the hospital, and they said, we've done studies on all these things, and we've found that this is the best protocol for your baby. Would you want them to do that? Or would you want them to go down the route of not doing all those things? Like, wait, like, you know, cutting the umbilical cord first and stuff. Well, no, this, like, you just, you know, carried this kid for nine months. You went through 
so much pain and having to go to the bathroom all the time and not being able to sleep. Like you want the best thing for this kid, right? You're like, no, wait for to cut that cord. So we want to do the same thing for these puppies and kittens as well. We want to wait to cut that cord. They actually then looked at studies that they looked at um, puppies in this 2020 study where they like had 25 puppies that they clamped the cords immediately after they were born and 25 puppies where they clamped the umbilical cord after the puppy had been breathing for at least three minutes. What that study showed was that waiting at least three minutes after the neonate had started breathing, so the breathing, so, so neonate has to be breathing, we wait three minutes from when it starts breathing. If you wait at least three minutes, then you increase the vitality of the puppies. So they're much more likely to survive when we just wait that three minutes. Because now we know that, you know, we know that mom has been getting a large amount of anesthesia which already causes fetal hypoxia. And if we let the body absorb those red blood cells, all of those have a lot of oxygen in them and it's gonna help the heart to be able to function correctly. So, you know, don't don't cut that cord, don't clamp that cord yet. All right, now while I've explained all this, it's actually probably been three minutes. So once that three minutes is up, go ahead and clamp the cord and we can put some suture around it. Again, like, you know, one source says absorbable suture. One source says non-absorbable suture. Does it matter that much? I really don't think so. But you're going to tie it about one centimeter from the body wall or from the abdominal wall and then cut it with clean scissors. And then this is where your iodine comes in. You want to dip the end of that umbilical cord into the iodine or the betadine. This actually helps to prevent any infection from getting into the bloodstream. You know, that that um, end of that umbilical cord is nice and fresh and has blood coming out from it and bacteria loves that. So we want to try to help suppress that. And then it also helps dry up the umbilical, like the end of the umbilicus too. So, you know, after that three minutes, cut it, go ahead and dip it in the betadine solution. And then once they're doing well, put them into the incubator. Now, again, like, you know, I, I keep, strategically not talking about certain things. So notice I have not talked about where to put them with mom. So we actually should not put them with mom at this point because mom is really loopy at this point. She had gotten good pain medication beforehand. She got good pain pain medication after the surgery. She's been under anesthesia. She does not know what's happening. So we do not want to put the puppies in with mom until... We know that mom is awake, fully awake, and somebody is able to watch them consistently. Because even though mom might seem awake, she's not completely awake and she might try to eat them. So I have a quick story here. I know I usually tell stories like at the end, but when Abigail was getting her tooth out, like I specifically asked them if they would give Dexdomator and they said no because they didn't know the protocol to do this and they gave her ketamine and midazolam. And I said, I argued with them and I said I think this is going to be a bad idea Abigail is going to be very hostile afterwards and they said well this is our protocol I said okay and so I got her she went to the dentist she did her whole protocol I brought her home and she kicked and screamed and fought it didn't matter what I did whether she was in her car seat or out of her car seat, whether she was watching TV or not watching TV, whether she was eating a cookie or a brownie, it did not matter. She was 
angry. That is terrible. So, anesthesia does some crazy stuff to you. So, we don't want the puppies in with mom in case she accidentally kills them. But if you have time, somebody else has time to sit and watch, like very diligently watch the puppies and mom to make sure that the puppies get the colostrum, then great. Go ahead and put them on there as long as somebody is watching them very carefully. So the reason why we talk about like when they should be put on is because um, neonates, they actually need to be able to get a lot of their immunity from their mom, but they can only use that um, maternal antibodies and stuff that goes through the milk into their into their intestines, so into their mouth and into their intestines, and the intestines absorb it. They can only absorb that for the first 24 hours after the birth. After that, it's kind of useless. They can't absorb any more of it. It's just there, which is why colostrum is only in the first couple of milks, right? It's actually not something that you have every day. You cannot produce milk that has colostrum in it every single day. It's only there for the first 24 hours and that is why. So you'll get a lot of clients who are unhappy because we did not put the puppies with mom. And it's a good thing just to explain that to them. Like, hey, you know, we don't want mom to kill the puppies. She's been under anesthesia and she's just not going to know what those are. She's not going to know what those puppies are right now until she's like fully awake, which then we suggest you take her home at that point and you do all the nursing watching her. So then what if mom doesn't produce any milk? We have some alternatives still. So we can still use maternal serum. So that's like when we draw blood, you put it in the red top tube, and then you spin it down, and then there's that clear, pinkish, most usually clear stuff on the top. That is serum. That is something we can use to be able to put into a gastric tube. When they like kind of like put a tube into their stomach and we give them as much colostrum as or serum as they need. So that way we can get immunity into the puppies. You only need about 15 mils per 100 grams of puppies. So it's a small amount that we need. The other thing you can do is like, let's say it's been past that amount of time where they're going to fight us if we do an oral gastric tube. You can also actually do serum under the skin of puppies. So we just like get the bag or a little bit from mom and then we give that to the puppy again that's going to be about five mils per hundred grams of body weight so if you have you know a couple hundred grams of body weight we're going to need quite a few mils so a lot of times it's just like taking as much blood as possible and then trying to give back as much as we possibly can as well let's talk about real quick our don'ts what we don't do one don't swing the puppy it actually puts the puppy or our kitten at a really high risk for aspirating stomach fluid, and then that'll lead to pneumonia, and of course they will die. Don't use the force, or essentially just don't swing the puppy because we're going to cause brain damage and pneumonia. None of those are good. And then do not use Dopram or Atropine because they're not going to work in this situation. All right, let's kind of break down a summary real quick of those things. So in summary... As soon as we get the puppy, we're going to clear off the sack from the puppy. Don't clamp it, just clear it off. Use a towel to dry it off and warm up the neonate, and then put them into the incubator if they are breathing or vocalizing at that point. Otherwise, start suctioning out their nose and their mouth and deliver them oxygen, ideally by that flow-by trick that I talked about where we put that, that um, glove over the mask and put the mask over the puppy's 
nose to be able to give more oxygen. You can use that 24 gauge needle in the nasal planum to be able to um, turn it clockwise and then do the acupuncture point to try to get them to breathe. You can deliver one drop of naloxone up to every 30 minutes. You can do chest compressions and ventilation if they're bradycardic or just have a low heart rate. You can administer epinephrine if you need to, administer dextrose if you need to, and then um, eventually you're going to cut the cord and dip it into iodine after the puppy has been breathing for at least three minutes. All right, that's a lot on puppy making, right? My goal is that if we have puppy making, like the next time I'm going to videotape it so that people can see what I'm talking about. And then hopefully we'll be able to um, make a video of this and put it on YouTube for everybody. All right. All right, quick story time. It's about Hala, the little uh, Shih Tzu poodle thing. I don't know what she is, but my little dog Hala we just adopted. So she didn't even know how to go up the stairs when we adopted her. Like she was terrified of them. And then she didn't know how to walk or really how to run because the prior foster family just kept her in a stroller. So she really didn't know how to do anything. So every day we've been going like out to the chickens four or five times a day. We go walk around the property. We go up and down the stairs 200 times. Like she is definitely getting tons of exercise. And she can now like sort of trot she doesn't really run, but she like kind of trots over and she really isn't interested in anything like, I mean, besides food, she loves food, but she doesn't really care less about other dogs. She doesn't really care about cats or, um, things in the yard, small creatures or anything. She really doesn't care at all. So I took her over to the chickens and had the chicken come, chickens come out, just three of them. Cause I dropped some mealworms on the ground. And I was like, well, here's a chance to eat them. So Hala was doing great with two of the chickens. I let her just like kind of walk around. She sniffed them. That was it. And then she was done. And then about a minute later, there she goes chasing the chickens. I've never seen her run once. And there she goes like bounding, chasing these chickens. <laughs> Those poor chickens. I felt so bad for them. They're okay. Nobody got hurt, but um, it was pretty comical to see this like tiny little white dog who's like half the size of these chickens um, going after them. So anyways, all right. Thank you guys. And I will see you next week. Again, as always, let me know if you have any questions and let me know if there's any topics that you want me to do. Thanks.